Uh, thanks for having me back to speak. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm part of the team here. Um, the title of today's sermon is called Faith in the Midst of Chaos. Sorry, let me just do this. And, um, and we're going to look at a moment of chaos in the history of uh, the Bible and how faith played a role in that. We're just going to read a big chunk of uh, text in Jeremiah 32, and I'll just offer two very simple observations that uh, I um, received from that text. Uh, It's so simple, you might boo me off stage, so bear with me, Uh, but I do believe that God has a word for us this morning, and maybe even now we can pray for the Holy Spirit to to speak to us and help us to listen to Him. Um, uh, On the next slide, I've just put some resources up that I used uh, to um, put this together, and if you have any questions or you want to dive more into uh, these resources, feel free to take a picture of them or I can point you to it afterwards, but they were a great help for me um, to visit uh, and to prepare. Um, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that as we come and look into your words, that we would in our hearts be positioned to receive your words. God, I pray for me, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. God, I pray it will be less of me and more of you. God, I pray that for our church this morning, that it will be less of us and more of you, and that we would receive you with open arms this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, Josh preached from Exodus uh, 14. And in Exodus 14, the Israelites were fresh out of Egypt and they were escaping the grasp of Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt. And they were in the midst of that escape, in the midst of that journey, when God asked them to take a step back, to backtrack, and backtrack to a place where they would actually be cornered geographically. Now, this doesn't make any sense. If you're trying to escape from someone, we all know that distance is a good thing. So these Israelites were willing to be obedient to God and take a step back. And we later on see that their step back eventually led to an incredible miracle that led to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea because God parted that. The Egyptian army was hot on the, uh, the Israelites' tails and in hot pursuit. And as the Israelites got out, while the Egypt- Egyptians were in the Red Sea, God caused the Red Sea to swallow the Egyptian army up, wiping their fears once and for all. The Israelites don't need to run from the Egyptians anymore. So we were reminded last week that a step back may look like a setback for many of us. In fact, God can use it as a set up for a miracle that he can provide, for a miracle that is bigger than what we can possibly imagine. So today we're going to continue to look at a moment where, where God's people demonstrated faithfulness and how we can learn from that. We're in Jeremiah 32, and you can start flipping for, uh, to that on, on your phones or in your Bible. But while you do that, give us a little bit of context. 
This is around 588 BC, around 600 years before Christ came. Jerusalem has, at this point in history, has been living in continual um, disobedience from God. What God has set out for them, they've been living against it at this moment in time, to a point where they've even adopted Canaanite foreign idols as, as part of their worship. Uh, they would build idol shrines all over the streets, and even some of them would adopt Canaanite pra- the Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. The priests and the kings at this time abandoned God's words and teaching, and there was rampant social injustice during this time. Widows, orphans, people that were most vulnerable in that society were being taken advantage of, which is a clear violation of God's law. But the priests and the kings did not seem to care. God used Jeremiah at this point to prophesy to the Israelites that the Babylonians, a really strong army, will come and conquer Jerusalem and take the people into exile and captivity And it would be great many, many years before God will restore them. But that's also important in our story this morning, that that God spoke about restoration. God spoke through Jeremiah, and he didn't just tell of their destruction. He promised at great lengths uh, uh, about the restoration that he is going to provide. If you remember, Jeremiah has this really famous Bible verse that's, on a lot of Christian t-shirts, a lot of mugs. Do you remember what that verse is? Jeremiah 29. Okay, I'll read parts of it and see how, how uh, inducted you are into Christianity. <laughs> uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come to me and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So this is part of that restoration that God has promised as, a, as what's going to happen after the destruction of Jerusalem. Prophesying, it turns out prophesying about Jerusalem's destruction is not very popular uh, so uh, Jeremiah was in and out of prison during this time because the king did not want Jeremiah to spread his message. So this is where we find ourselves, Jeremiah 32. Uh, I'm just going to read the text. Verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which is the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time, The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm coming and giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. So a few things we learn about this passage immediately is that the city is under siege. And what that means is back in the day, uh, cities had walls around them, big, thick walls. In fact, they're about two and a half meters thick, uh, about eight feet thick. So they're really thick walls, and that's how a city protected itself. So 
walls are great at keeping people out, but they're also great at keeping people in. Uh, so what happened is the Babylonian army surrounded the city of Jerusalem and, uh, and everyone was stuck inside. And you can immediately imagine some of these logistical issues that you would have being stuck within a city. Uh, first of all, you would have very limited resources, right? Food would be scarce. Farms are not in the city. They're outside the city. So people were going hungry. There was sickness because all the trash, all the uh, dead bodies were all stuck within the uh, city. And the Babylonians at this point kept attacking the city. So people were dying because of that as well. Later on in the passage, you'll see, you'll hear Jeremiah describe something called siege ramps. So walls are great, but ramps are better. So when you build, a, uh, there's a wall there. One of the common tactics that they used in that time was to build a ramp to go over the wall. Uh, if you know anything about me, I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I took a lot of pictures of uh, siege ramps during that time. And uh, actually, uh, what, what uh, archaeologists believe as uh, cross-sections of siege ramps, these are actual people going up a, a remnants of a siege ramp. I put this here because it gives us the size and the scale of what these things looked like at that point. So these aren't small little ramps. This took time to build. And the Babylonians built this over time as they were besieging the city. So as these ramps were being completed, people in the city also saw. And people in the city at some point knew that the end is near. We'll continue in verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, by my field that is at Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, By my field that Anatoth, uh, that by my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Verse 9, And I bought the field at Anatoth and Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Verse 13, I charged Baruch in, the presence, in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of the purchase and this by open deed and put them in an earthware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Jeremiah and Hanamel had this divine encounter where they were both led by God to exchange possession of this field. Jeremiah was to buy this field off Hanamel. If you think about the context, there is no earthly reason why Jeremiah should buy property inside a besieging city at this time. Knowing full well that their way of life 
their laws, land ownership, all of that will soon no longer be in place. In human terms, this was a terrible investment. At this point, it is clear not only will his asset lose value, but he will lose the asset itself. So this was not a good idea. Furthermore, the money that he used to purchase this land could have been way better off used securing food for himself, buying supplies, getting things that are essential during this time. But Jeremiah bought the field because he had faith in God. And what Jeremiah communicated in this transaction was his confidence in God's promise to his people while there's no evidence of that to happen. God used Jeremiah's obedience to broadcast to the people of Jerusalem that there is certainty in God's restoration. There is a hope for the future that what is promised to them will come to pass while all the signs around them point towards the end to a life and a lifestyle that they know it. Jeremiah leaned in and stood by God's promise that he will restore Jerusalem even though he knew this is not going to happen in his lifetime. Jeremiah then has this beautiful dialogue with God, and this is a really beautiful moment because Jeremiah has this uh, very real human moment where he asks why would you tell me to buy a field? Why would you do that? And a lot of times we find ourselves doing just that, asking God, are you sure why this? Verse 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay guilt of fathers of their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Now that's a good start to a prayer, but this is also important. Jeremiah starts his prayer with adoration. In adoration, we are changed because we remember who God is and what God we worship. And we remember that our God controls everything. So that's important to note that Jeremiah starts his prayer in adoration. But he continues on uh, in verse 24. Behold, the siege mounts have come up to the city to take it, and because the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given to the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Um, Just for us, Chaldeans are a group of people that were assimilated to Babylon. Uh, they, They were fighting for the Babylonians. So that's who uh, Jeremiah is referring to. 
So Jeremiah has this moment of complaint, a moment of asking God, why would you do this? Why, you know, you know what's happening, yet you tell me to buy, to buy a field. It doesn't make any sense. And God responds, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Now that's a response. Verse 28, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving the city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans are, who are fighting against the city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. So God at this point continues to remind Jeremiah of all the ways that Israelites broke the covenant with God and all the ways that they have turned their backs from God. But in verse 36, the tone shifts. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the city of which you say is given to the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all countries to which I drove them out in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart, one way, that they will fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me, and I will rejoice doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and, my, and all my soul. And if you continue to read the rest of this chapter, in chapter 33, God speaks in detail about Israel's restoration. Restoration at this point is the furthest thing on people's minds right now. And it seems impossible given the current climate. Yet God, our God, is the God of the impossible. And even when everything turns upside down, he's working for his purpose to be faithful to his promise. He is faithful in the midst of our chaos. So here's the first point uh, of the two really simple points. Are you ready? The cure to faithfulness is to be reminded of God's faithfulness. All right. Very simple. The cure to faithlessness is to be reminded of God's faithfulness. I know. Groundbreaking stuff. No one's booed me off yet, so we're okay. I'll give it some time, don't worry. <laughs> First, I want to just take note that uh, 
it is okay to come to God acknowledging our circumstances are hard. Sometimes for those of us that have been a Christian for a long time, we believe we know what the right attitude to come to God is. But in this moment, Jeremiah comes to God with all his uncertainty, and he is honest with his heart condition. Sometimes we come to God pretending that what prayers he would like us to pray but sometimes he desires us to be honest with him, and he knows our heart condition already. And what does God do when Jeremiah comes to him in honesty? He reminds Jeremiah of his faithfulness. He reminds him of his promises. God reminds him of all the ways that he has come through time and time again. God uses this special phrase when he response to Jeremiah that you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is a signature phrase God has used throughout the whole Bible that brings attention to the covenant that God has made with the Israelites. And when God speaks that, it brings up thoughts about his covenant, his promises to, to his people. And it's a close, tender promise that God is faithful through everything. Just as he was faithful to the Israelites when they took a step back and trusted God and God set up things that are greater than what they can imagine, it's that same thought that is here at this moment. We can see in this passage that God refocuses Jeremiah's attention away from the chaos away from the siege ramps, away from the pestilence, the famine, the fear, but to himself. And when it comes to looking at God's faithfulness, we need to remember that our response to him is that our level of faith is dependent on our view of the object of our faith. So let me say that again. Our level of faith is dependent on our view of the, of the object of our faith. What I mean by that is I have a chair here, and if you ask me to sit on it, I have very little faith that I will not be on the ground. If you ask me to sit on it, I'm going to be like, oh, this doesn't look very sturdy. It's got three legs. I'm going to try, but I think there's an 80% chance I'll make a fool of myself. I'm going to hold some stuff. I'm going to maybe take it slow with my knee. I'll slowly put my, I don't know. Oh, it's, it doesn't look good. Maybe I give it another shot. Ugh. Yep, nope, it's not good. I rightly have very little faith in that chair. My level of faith in that chair is very low because the object of my faith looks unsturdy. But if I have a chair here and you tell me to sit on this chair, I know that I've sat on this chair a thousand times and it's going to be sturdy. And every time I sit on it, it's going to hold me up. The object of my faith is sturdy, so my faith in it is strong. I have great confidence in this chair. 
And yes, it works to, to no one's surprise. Thank you. Praise God. I was uh, a little scared that the chair would break. <laughs> but here's to say that our, the level of our faith is dependent on our view of the object of our faith. When we believe that the object of our faith is a small God, maybe he won't pull through. I don't know if, he's real, if he really loves me. I'm going to be very cautious, and my level of faith is going to be low. But when I come to God and I believe that he is sturdy and he has proven time and time again that he is faithful and the object of my faith is him, I'm going to have confidence to sit down because the object of my faith is God and I believe he is powerful. Maybe the object of our faith, we mix in some of our own limitations into the object of our faith. Maybe I'm thinking, I don't know if I can really do it. I don't know what God, if God's called me to do this thing, if, if that's really possible. If I mix in my limitations as the object of my faith, I'm going to have very little faith. But if I keep the object of my faith, God, I'm going to have greater faith. Maybe God has called some of us to be leaders or to serve in different ways or to take a bold step to love each other in different ways. When we think, oh God, you've called me to be a leader, you've called me to serve in this new way, but I don't know if I can do it. Uh, it doesn't look very steady. I don't know if I have the right right background or if 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 i can actually you know deliver i don't know if this is the right thing for me to do i don't know what my family will think other people will think uh i don't know if i have the right credentials for this i'm gonna struggle but if god's called me to do something to be a leader or to take a bold step or to boldly love people around us in different ways. And I say, God, you've done it in the past. I know you're working now. You are faithful and you're big. We're going to have more confidence to take that leap. Maybe it's not being a leader or, or, or you know, taking a bold step in, in, in serving Maybe for, for us as a family, for me and Annie, it's putting down roots in Hong Kong for now while everyone is leaving, right? It looks uncertain. I don't know if this is the best for a family, but God has led me through so much. And if I put my faith in him, I don't know if it's going to be the best for a family, but I know it's going to be the best for his kingdom. And that is what we're after. And for some of us, maybe that bold step that God is calling us to is to address brokenness and hurt with our parents, with our spouses, with our siblings, with our children, to take that bold step and trust him and his leadership. And that step of faith, we can be sure that God is leading us. He is faithful. He is the object of our faith, not ourselves, our limitations. 
Sometimes when we're lacking faith, we should consider examining what is the object of our faith. Who do we ascribe as the object of our faith? Is it our own limitations mixed in with what we believe God can do? Is our view of God diminished? Or is he calling us to trust in all that he is because he is faithful? The cure to faithlessness is to be reminded of God's faithfulness. Point number two, again, how do, so how, do we, how are we reminded of God's faithfulness? Well, by praying. Again, don't boo me off stage. Uh, when Jeremiah has these fears creeping up to him, his response is to come to God in prayer. And he starts his prayer by recounting all the ways that God has been faithful. As we pray and adore God, he reminds us of how big he is as a God. And we are reminded of just the grandeur of the God that we worship. Jeremiah also listened to the voice of God. God spoke to Jeremiah, reminding him of all the promises that he's made and how he's always come through on his promises. And in the same way, I believe that God speaks to us through his word, reminding us of his faithfulness. God's designed prayer in such a beautiful way. As we pray and adore God in our prayers we are reminded of who God is because we lift our eyes from ourselves to God. That's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it starts off with, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. But as we pray and focus on God, we also become more attentive to his voice. As he speaks through us, his word speaks and becomes alive and as we listen we are changed we experience transformation prayer is essential for us to focus on god and be more attentive to his word i have a couple of stories that i want to share where uh, i have experienced this uh just Maybe not directly, but I've seen this happen in the life of our church and, and, and in a previous experience, uh, how God changed the fabric of, um, of a congregation or a group of people because their hearts were turned. Uh, in this church, some of you remember there's a, a pastor called John Epp. Uh, who, who remembers that, John Epp? You've just all dated yourself. You're at least... 30 years old. <laughs> um, John Epp, if you remember, he has a Mennonite background. He comes from a Mennonite uh, a background, which means he's very conservative. Uh, he's very reserved, and he's very sweet and very kind. You can see this is a picture of uh, the congregation a long time ago. Uh, you, you can maybe make out some familiar faces, uh, but this person here is John Epp. This person here with the shoes and white socks, uh, he's John F. Uh, so when he came in the 1980s to our church, he was already in his 50s. 
okay? And he stayed around until the 2000s. And when I came back, it was in the 2000s. And if, if I were to be honest, there was not a lot of vigor in Pastor John Epps' uh, preaching. I remember one day uh, while uh, Pastor Epps was speaking, looking around, and there was a sea of people, like 15, uh, that were sitting like this and pretending to pray. But I know deep down that they were all sleeping. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the classic move I learned from my parents. Uh, <laughs> but I remember that there was a season around 2004, and some of you were here for that, that there, was, there were a few council members, and, and, and Pastor John would meet up every week at our home and they would pray for transformation, and they would pray for the Holy Spirit to work mightily through them. And during that time, there was a palatable shift, uh, you know, as a teenager, that's what I experienced, palatable shift in our congregational worship. Our hearts were open to the words of God, and I remember there was all of a sudden a power in Pastor John's message. Do you remember that? That all, towards the end of his time here, all of a sudden, all his, all his sermons cut deep, and there was so much power and vigor in his messages. We saw transformation in the congregation, and there was life in our worship. I remember Pastor John, when I first came, his, his, uh, his most comfortable uh, posture in worship is this. I remember seeing that from the stage. I saw Pastor John just standing there, solemnly looking at, at this, uh, at the screen, uh, sometimes with a hymn book uh, back in the day. But that, that changed radically. At this point, Pastor John was in his 70s, so he's, he's grown this, this, uh, this culture that he's established for himself, a pattern of worship that he's comfortable in. But during this time, I remember towards his time, end of his time at EEC, I saw Pastor John lifting his hands up in abandon, worshiping with tears rolling down his eyes. I don't know if you guys remember that, that he would always be sitting in the front uh, right of the congregation and he would have his hands lifted high in worship. And that, to me, as a teenager, left a huge impact because I saw the transformational power of God in someone's life in their 70s towards the end of their career as a pastor at EEC. As we pray and hear God, He moves and changes us and empowers us even if we're in our 70s, even if we have established patterns of doing things, God's not done with us yet. The second story I want to tell quickly was I was attending a Christian campus fellowship during my university days, and during one of our, my fourth year there, there is a leader called Kelvin. Kelvin was that year very convicted about the lack of prayer that we had in our in our in our fellowship uh at this point 
we had weekly prayer meetings, but only three or so people gathered every week to pray. But we had about two to three hundred people come regularly to our, to our service. Calvin believed that the most important ministry we had was that of prayer because it fueled everything we did. Kelvin told, asked, asked, told that everyone who was serving needs and is mandatory for them to come to a prayer meeting because he believed that if you're not praying, there will be no power in your ministry. If you're not praying, what is the point in doing all these things when you have no communion with God? At first, people came grudgingly, uh, but soon we saw the landscape of that congregation change. Our prayer meetings became gatherings where people left encouraged and recharged because we experienced God. Reading His Word together went from being dull and routine to being a time that's filled with awe and wonder because His Word was cutting to our hearts and His Word became alive to us collectively as a congregation. We went from having prayer meetings once a week with three people to that room being full, then twice a week, prayer meetings twice a week, to three times a week, to four times a week, to a point where we had no more space left and we couldn't rent any more rooms. During that time, outreach exploded. People grew a passion for the underprivileged, uh, friends, their doormates, prisoners, homeless people, exchange students, Passion for the word exploded because we were experiencing in real time the transformation power that the word had in our lives. And it was tangible and we can see it at work in our congregation. As we prayed and focused our eyes on God, he helped us to be more attentive to his word and he transformed us and our ministry. So church, if we are to move into the next chapter of EEC and go strong, we have to grow a dependency and faith in God. And to do that, we have to come together and pray. We often say at church, and you hear it all the time, that, that prayer is the fuel, prayer is the gas for us to move forward as a church so let's come to the gas station, right? How do we get gas if we don't come to the gas station? Yes, God is omnipresent. He can work in different ways, and individually he's doing many things, but there is a special power that God displays when two or three or more are gathered together and pray in his name. It says in Matthew 18, when two or three are gathered in his name, he, I am there with them. And we, that is what we want. We want God with here, with us now. And we want to see his transformational power affecting our hearts. I believe with all my heart that the fabric of this church will change forever if we devote ourselves in prayer. Because as we pray, we focus our eyes on God. We become more attentive to his word. He will transform us and he will transform this church. I know sometimes asking, pe 
people to come to prayer meeting is difficult. Uh, it's not easy. We all are very busy. That's the culture of Hong Kong. We have lots of commitments. And whenever we ask for volunteers on stage, from our position here standing, we can see people like averting their gaze because you don't want to make eye contact with the, whoever is asking for volunteers uh, because it's easier to just not volunteer than to say no to someone asking you to volunteer. Uh, I get that, and I get that we are busy. I get that our lives are filled with so much, and we have so many commitments. But if you have the heart to serve this church, and you feel like you don't have enough time to commit hours in a week, I get it. But can I suggest that we spend half an hour on a Sunday coming earlier to our congregation, to our service, and praying? Powerhouse could be the most powerful way that you or anyone can serve our church and advance the kingdom of God in EEC and in Hong Kong and experience the power of God's transformation together. It's just 30 minutes. Please come because we need to come together and pray. So as we close uh, back into the story of Jeremiah, we don't know, we don't quite know what happened to the field he bought. There's no happy ending that ties this, this story nicely together. We don't know if it was sold off or it made a profit after the siege and everyone came back or if it was completely forgotten. But what we do know is that after 25 centuries of that transaction taking place, we're still talking about it today as a moment of faith. Would financial planners have told Jeremiah to spend his 17 shackles of silver on a field that will be losing its value for the next 70 years at minimum? No. They would tell them to you know, spend wisely uh, on a human perspective, run investment uh, strategies, have a good return on, on investment analysis on, on, on a field, use it on food, But is there anything else he could have done with this money that would have made a greater impact for the kingdom of God? At that point, and right here, right now, I don't think so. In the middle of darkness, where everyone in the city realizes that they have literally nothing else to rely on, Jeremiah demonstrated the good news that God has a plan and has a plan to restore and redeem his people. His obedience spread hope to the people of God and reminded that he is their God and they are his people. And they're able to do this because the object of his faith is not about things happening around him, but the object of Jeremiah's faith is God and all he is. And when his faith was at a rocky place, he prayed and focused back on God and God lifted his gaze, Jeremiah's gaze, from, the middle, from his immediate circumstances back into God. Spoiler alert, eventually the siege ramps get completed. 
Jerusalem falls and the Israelites are off to exile for 70 years in Babylon. Babylon also eventually falls. And just as God promised, the Israelites started returning to the city. Ezra and Nehemiah would later on lead the efforts of rebuilding the church, the temple, and the wall. And fast forward 600 years after that, in the same city, Jesus of Nazareth ministers to his people, lives a perfect life. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, perfect in every way, was tortured, beaten, and hung on a cross, but raised to life again to broadcast to everyone on planet Earth that he is our God and we are invited to be his people. We don't have to wait for future restoration. It can be happening right here and right now. Second Corinthians, it says, for, for the, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Church, we are strangers no more. We're woven into his family. We are adopted sons and daughters. And if you're a Christian, there is hope for your future because you are a son. You are a daughter of God. And nothing else can shake that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And I just want to end by saying that we are loved forever by a faithful father and a powerful God. Kingdoms will come and go. Markets will come up and down. Jobs will come and go. But God is forever and his love for you is unshakable. I believe God really does have a word for us today as a church. That we can trust him to be the object of our faith. We can lift our eyes from our own limitations, and listen to him. His word is powerful and has the power to change us and our lives and our church and Hong Kong. Heavenly Father,